Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Later in the podcast, I'll be talking to Tom Hennigan, our correspondent in Brazil, about the emphatic first round victory of the far right candidate, Jair Bolsonaro, in that country's presidential election. But first today, we're turning our attention to the latest report on climate change from the world's leading experts in this area, and it makes for a very stark reading indeed. The report, issued by the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, warns that the immediate consequences of global warming are worse than previously thought. The report says we have only a dozen years for global warming to be kept to a maximum of 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels, beyond which even a half degree would significantly increase the risks of drought, floods, extreme heat and poverty for hundreds of millions of people. Avoiding the likely immediate damage requires transforming the world economy at a speed and scale that has no documented precedent, the report warns. For more on this, I'm joined in studio by Kevin O'Sullivan, our Environment and Science Editor. Kevin, this is by no means the first report from climate scientists warning us about the dangers of, of global warming. What makes this report from the IPCC so significant? I think the most significant element is the not only the starkness, but the, the speed at which climate change is happening. And uh, we're, we're used to sort of climate effects over decades, over centuries, over thousands of years. But this one is saying before 2040, there will be major impacts and uh, some of them will be particularly hard on, on the more vulnerable parts of the world in low-lying countries in the South Pacific, especially in developing countries such as Africa. Uh, but we won't escape. Ireland will suffer in the sense of more extreme uh, weather events, heat waves, flooding, storms. So there, there are implications for everyone in the world. Um, and I think the other significant element of the report is that the science is unequivocal. Um, there's an input of thousands of scientists into this study. And it, the findings are, are very clearly justified and they've outlined a whole series of scenarios depending on factors, depending on how governments might respond. But the message is clearly the same uh, in the sense that we have to move much more quickly in terms of climate action. That That's in the sense of reducing carbon emissions, but also adopting renewable energy sources. With that combination is the key thing to countering climate change. 2040, that's a very short time frame, isn't it? I mean, these are... Um, we're talking about effects that will be experienced by most of the people who are alive in the world today. Absolutely. And it's quite shocking in that regard. And I don't think governments can ignore it and say this is going to this is something that might happen mid-century or later. And that that was the response of a lot of a lot of developing countries who are heavily dependent on fossil fuel use. So it, it, it is immediate and uh, it, it requires action across every section of society if this target of 1.5 degree increases to be achieved. But the other very stark element of it is, is that, you know, 0.5 of a degree matters hugely. And they've outlined in great detail what this means for not just the human population, but in terms of the physical environment, in terms of sea levels, in terms of melting ice and the Arctic in particular, and also then the impact on nature, on biodiversity, on pollinators, and all the effects are pretty awful once the temperature begins to rise towards two, two degrees. The backdrop to this also is that, that on, based on current projections, we're set for a three degree rise, which is almost you know horrible to, to contemplate given the scale of devastation that's likely. But that, that reality is there. And I think that this is going to inform the whole sort of review of the Paris Agreement over coming years. What would a three degree rise entail 
in other words, we keep going as we're going now, what, how would the world change? Well, it would be very dramatic, to put it mildly, in sense of probably rising sea levels uh, affecting coastal communities across the world, including Ireland, would be very obvious. Um, more volatile, extreme weather events that, that will cause more destruction. Uh, on top of that, uh, greater migration throughout the world, um, greater loss of biodiversity, much more extinction of species, both plant and animals, and the list goes on and on. And I, to be frank, I think a three-degree scenario you know, you know, just cannot be contemplated, really. We have to move to, to, to go for that 1.5 target. It might, might be realised, but anything... You know, less than two will be will be will still be troublesome, but we have to be in that zone. And, and Kevin, just to clarify here, you, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is when we talk about 1.5 degrees from pre-industrial levels, we've already gone the first degree. Isn't that correct? We're talking about an, an, keeping it to another half degree. That's that's correct. And and some of the science would say we're already at, at 1.1 degree, um, and most of that increase has happened in the last few decades. So you can see the accelerating trend, and that's reflected in extreme temperature uh, in, in terms of record temperatures during summer uh, and even during winter. So that, that's further evidence that we're moving relentlessly towards that 1.5 and that the trend is accelerating. Remind us of who sits on the IPCC, the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. I mean, how many, how many authors does this report have? Well, in this particular report, there were 90 authors. Two, two of them were Irish in terms of con- contributing to two chapters. Um, but the, the, there's a pool of 600,000 600, um, 6, scientists throughout the world, and these are leading climatologists mainly and, and experts on, on, on nature, on uh, you know, chemical impacts of emissions, etc. And they, they all feed into this process. And uh, depending on the report, then, then a certain cohort of that would, would form the expert group so the 90 scientists were finalised this report. It's the culmination of two years' work. But, for example, there was 24,000 recent comments fed in from that pool into into that process since since last January. So it's it's a very uh, robust scientific process that, that undermines the strength of the scientific findings. And what do they say needs to be done if this 1.5% ceiling is to be adhered to? What... What kind of current practices in, in industry and in agriculture, other sectors need to change? Well, I've not been unduly simplistic, but I'm, it has to go across every section of society in terms of how we live, how we work, uh, in terms of how we manufacture, in, in terms of how we produce food and how we eat. It, it's, 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 as ra- it's as radical as that. Uh, so, you know, there's an obligation on every element of society, whether that's um, an, uh, a particular food company, a farmer or an industrial plant. And uh, there are obvious targets in each sector, whether it's to do with emissions or to towards adopting renewable energy. So in Ireland, the obvious the obvious problem areas are in heat in the way we heat our homes using fossil fuel boilers. Um, the, the way transport is hugely dependent on fossil fuels and increasingly that has been diesel fuel. Um, and then agriculture is, is a very difficult area because reducing emissions in agriculture is not easy. It's a complex task. So we, 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 we being very agricultural 
absolutely dependent as an economy. Uh, we, we have very high emissions related to agriculture at over 30% of our carbon emissions. So there's an obvious area there that we need to go at in terms of a building and identifying a, a roadmap that will bring us to that point of reducing emissions. But the, there's a responsibility on every sector to bring down emissions. And uh, I think it's very clear now that, that you know, where the problems are in Ireland in terms of transport, heat and, and agriculture. And are these hugely expensive uh, changes? Can, can, can world economies afford to make the kind of changes that these r- scientists are recommending? Well, on paper, they look very expensive. But in reality, the quicker you get there, the quicker you're going to get an economic benefit from your actions. The longer you delay, the more costly it's going to be. And that sort of law of economics is very clear now and it's a proven one. So, you know, any further delay on due delay is, is going to add to the cost for, for the taxpayer and for governments. And uh, for Ireland, the problem is that we're in a scenario from 2020 that we're we're likely to have substantial fines for failing to meet legally binding targets that we've committed to under the EU umbrella. And Kevin, the report goes into some detail about the difference between a 1.5% ceiling and a 2% ceiling. Explain that half percent, why it's so important. Well, it's critical because every 0.1 degree matters because, you know, once the the global temperature rises, and it varies from place to place, but once you have that scenario, there are obvious physical effects on the the landscape. But also you have a scenario where the combined global warming effect from from the atmosphere is, is... is getting more and more difficult. So um, that's why, even though it might seem like a very small margin, um, you know, 1.5 will give you a very clear set of results. And I think the most obvious one is sea level rise. If you if you can keep the limit to 1.5 degrees, you're not going to see a scenario where levels of sea would rise by 70, 80 centimetres this century, which would cause devastations for the, the islands of the South Pacific, for example. Does this report mirror the targets agreed in the Paris Climate Accord of 2015 or does it go further than Paris? That's a good question because Paris was kind of a fudge, really. It was a political fudge. Um, the, the provisional sort of initial target was two degrees, but developing countries and, and countries in, in, in the South Pacific saw that they couldn't tolerate the consequences of that. So they forced through an agreement it was sort of like a subclause in the agreement that that the, the world would aspire to 1.5 degrees and while keeping below two degrees, and that 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 became a key identifier, so to speak, at that point. And this report was uh, an attempt to evaluate what actually that meant and what are the scenarios and how we, we could achieve it. And that, it is very clear on that. And it, it is showing very interesting pathways to achieve it, even though, as you've said, that the scale of change is unprecedented. And as you know, of course, speaking of Paris, Donald Trump has said he will take the US out of the Paris Climate Accord. Now, presumably US scientists are also on board with this report. There's no dissension, I think, from the report. Is that right? So That's true, except that from diplomatic uh, uh, files, it was clear that there was there was an attempt to sort of roll back from the US position and to, to sort of say that the IPC process wasn't working and that it wasn't embracing new technologies to counter 
climate change and rising carbon. Um, but in effect, the US is still around the table. So they had an input into the final into the final summary document, which was issued uh, today. It's very interesting, though. I spoke to Peter Thorne, who's one of the contributing authors to the study. Uh, he's a climatologist based in Maynooth University. And he, in his view, having seen the draft reports and the final one, he, he, he says there, there's, there is no watering down. And everyone suspected that the, that might materialise given the political press, pressure because the governments have the final say in ratifying once we get to this stage. And you, you, you mentioned already the implications for Ireland there, but in terms of the Irish government, Irish government policy, are, are there specific implications in the report? The, 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 the Irish government's main problem is that they're locked into a scenario of rising carbon emissions, primarily due to transport and agriculture and to a lesser extent heat. And they have to change that trajectory by whatever means possible. Now, they have outlined a lot of measures in the last six months. They have uh, uh, announced the National Development Plan, which is a huge element of it is to do with climate action and mitigation with a, an investment of 22 billion which is not insignificant but they haven't got the the, the, the dial turned down and um so they're they're in a very difficult position and and internationally it doesn't go down well when other countries are achieving targets and we're not and again what do they need to do well they need to uh they need to sort of tie down implementation timeframes and deliver on them. There's a lot of plans that have been produced and some of them are very good and very, you know, they've got identified the problem, what needs to be done. Implementation is the key thing. In addition to that, which is uh, relevant to to tomorrow's budget, there's a clear need to increase the carbon tax so that this will prompt a change in behaviour and send a message to to industry that you know if they invest in in green technologies they're going to be rewarded for it and may, be able to make their contribution to to reducing the impl- the impacts of climate change um, i suppose we'll find out soon enough but is there any indication that they're actually prepared to do do that well the latest indication is that the, there will be an increase in the carbon tax but that'll be less than was envisaged uh, and the climate change advisory council headed by professor john Fitzgerald, recommended a 10 10 euro increase from 20 at the moment 20 euros per ton uh, but there's a lot of speculation today that that figure will, will be reduced. And what about the EU? Are there EU-wide implications? There are huge uh, EU-wide implications because the EU, EU wants to be a leader in climate change and it's flagged that repeatedly. Um, so you, you'd have to ask, having seen this study, is the Paris Agreement fit for purpose? Is it ambitious enough? And I think it's fair to say you know, all the targets will have to be revisited revis- and strengthened. Now, in fairness to the EU, it has flagged that it wants more ambitious targets and it's likely that when the next COP meets in Poland in December that that they will push for more demanding targets. So that would be particularly difficult for Ireland because we're not meeting our current targets. So piling on extra demands will be very, very difficult. And uh, Kevin, I'll be talking momentarily to Tom Hennigan about Jair Bolsonaro's first round win in the Brazil presidential election. He's another climate change sceptic in the Trump mould. I presume the last thing the world needs is another leader of a, you know, one of the major countries of the world in that, you know, in that position. It, it would be horrendous, really, because, uh, for example, Brexit is going to be difficult enough to negotiate from a climate point of view. And then to have uh, a major economy like Brazil rowing back, Australia has been rumbling about it as well. And clearly, Mr. Trump is set on a particular course. 
but actually I w- would have reasonable optimistic optimism about the US because I think within individual states and and uh, industries they are making huge strides to to match uh, commitments by the US so but it is it is a very difficult time when the multilateral model has been threatened and, and uh, individual countries are breaking away so I, I would worry about what might happen and so Kevin what happens to this report now where does it go from here well, this report is kind of, is like the key scientific verdict that will inform policy over the next decade. So, uh, it, the EU will will present uh, its findings to the to the gathering in Poland in in early December, with a view to reviewing its own policies and reviewing Paris. Sorry, uh, Poland is just to remind us. Yeah, what's happening in Poland? It is the annual gathering of the UN climate change. Uh, conference of parties. It's known, known as the COP, and uh, so that it's in Katowice in 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 Poland in in December. So that's at the next key uh, forum where Paris will have to be reviewed in great detail, and co- countries will have to commit to targets. But even tomorrow, environment ministers are meeting. Uh, EU environment me- ministers are meeting, and you know they will have to come out with a very strong response to this report to 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 reflect you know, a a better climate ambition. That was Kevin O'Sullivan, our environment and science editor. Now we turn to that remarkable result in the first round of Brazil's presidential election on Sunday, in which the far-right candidate, Jair Bolsonaro, following a campaign conducted largely from his hospital bed after he was stabbed at an election rally, came close to securing outright victory. In a crowded field, Bolsonaro won 46% of the vote, putting him in a commanding position ahead of a runoff against the Workers' Party candidate, Fernando Haddad, who finished in second place on 29%. Tom Hennigan joins me now from Sao Paulo. Um, Tom, you, you wrote in the Irish Times over the weekend about the surge that Bolsonaro was enjoying in the opinion polls. And I think when we last talked on Friday, he was on 37%, according to one poll at least. Was it nevertheless a surprise that he came so close to getting the 50% that would have avoided a second round runoff and given him outright victory in the election? It was a surprise in in that he came so close, though the polls had showed that he was um, he was increasing in support the closer the vote came. But it is a, a real case, I think, of once again, and this is a, a global phenomenon, how um, difficult it has become for opinion polls to to measure sudden moves. Um, and there was one in the last few days. He thought he was going to win in the first round. Um, so there was definitely a sense amongst his own supporters that they were going to win in the first round. Having failed to do so, uh, he's actually said he was the victim of fraud, that he would have won. That's total nonsense, but um, that's how he's saying how he didn't win. Just even watching the, the results come in last night on, on TV, you could just see political scientists and journalists covering Brazilian politics for decades were just stunned by, by the results coming in everywhere. Not only how well Bolsonaro had done, but how on his coattails he's basically dragged um, the kind of the cranky right wing fringe to the centre of, of politics in Brazil. So it, it was absolutely extraordinary night. Tell us about that, Tom, actually, because there has been a lot of focus on the, the presidential election. But what, what kind of other, there are also parliamentary elections going on there. What kind of um, other headline results were there? Well, you know, there, there's just so many to, to, to pick from. But um, if we take Bolsonaro's party, he's uh, he joined, he only joined this party in March. It's the uh, the Social Liberal Party. It elected four years ago, one deputy to the lower house. It had eight 
going into this election because people who had been elected for other parties joined it during the four years. And while people were aware that Bolsonaro was very much a competitive uh, presidential candidate, no one was really talking about the, um, the his party, the Social Liberals, doing so well. They went from eight deputies to over 50. They become the second biggest group now in the Congress. Now, admittedly, it's a very fractured Congress. It is it has, I think, 52 seats the last time I looked out of 513. Um, but that's that's just an absolutely stunning result. And parties that have dominated the Congress since redemocratization in the 80s were devastated by the vote. And people are now looking, going, well, who who are these new deputies that are coming in with Bolsonaro? Um, and some of the polls, like, again, the polling got it so wrong. You look at in Rio de Janeiro, a marginal candidate who never really polled um, at all, uh, all through the campaign that the opinion polls showed him, you know, as an also ran. He almost took the governorship of Rio de Janeiro um, and he will now face the second round and he would be best placed to win that. In the second most populous state in Brazil, a candidate who a few days ago said that he would back Bolsonaro in the second round shot from nowhere into pole position for a second round there. Even in the Cong- in the Senate, which tends to be a more a more sober institution in Brazil, uh, we have seen the advance of what were marginal small parties, including uh, Bolsonaro's own uh, social liberals, uh, taking a sizable chunk of the seats, all at the expense of traditional parties. And people now here are beginning to uh, question, well, you know, what does this mean for um, the future of Brazilian politics? And it's not quite clear yet. It's it's too early to say, but it, it, a, real, a real sense of shock, I think, among the political class and those who observe it at, at last night's results. And this is critical, Tom, isn't it, in terms of the Congress result? Because I know an assumption was made in some quarters, at least, that even if Bolsonaro won, that he wouldn't really have any support in Congress and and he wouldn't have the, 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 the backup that he needs in Congress to implement his, his programme. But from what you're saying, if he has, you know, 50 seats, it's a good start, isn't it? It is. And because his own personal vote was um, so large and he is now in pole position to become president, if he does win, and we have to say if, there's still three weeks to go, if he does win, he will have a sizable group in Congress, both people that owe their mandate to him and also what I would call sort of um, the small C conservative reactionary parties and caucuses in Congress who are always willing to do a deal with anyone in return for positions in federal government and Port Carroll and, and, and that sort of thing. They will, I think, all work with him. So he would start off, I think, from a stronger position than anyone expected. Uh, Tom, some have drawn an all too easy analogy um, between Bolsonaro and, and, and Donald Trump. But when we last spoke on the podcast two weeks ago, you said to me that compared to Trump, Bolsonaro's politics were a much cruder form of right-wing populism. Can you remind us of what you meant by that and what makes him such a controversial figure? Well, he he definitely is much cruder in his attacks on the system, in particularly on the left in Brazil. But uh, he is much more open than Trump uh, in his racism. He has a long history, as does his uh, vice presidential running mate, of making uh, very charged racial comments. Uh, He is also a noted homophobe and some very violently um, anti-gay statements over the years. Uh, He's someone who has also um, been charged with 
um, uh, aggression against colleagues in the Congress. He has told over the years to female colleagues in Congress that he wouldn't bother raping them because they were too ugly. He openly defends that women shouldn't get uh, equal pay because they uh, become pregnant and that creates complications for companies. So he's this is not a, um, this is not a sort of a subtle populism. This is much much cruder, and also he is someone who has always attacked what I would call the democratic and civic norms of Brazilian society as established um, under the constitution that was was brought in after the military dictatorship. He's a former army man who um, has always always attacked democracy in favor of dictatorships, particularly military, military dictatorships. He defends um, the Brazilian military regime. He's a big fan of Pinochet. So this is, it, it's, he's not someone who has ever shown any respect for the, the rules of the democratic game. Um, and I think another crucial difference is while, while Donald Trump, um, obviously as an outsider, he came to power um, as the candidate of the Republican Party, one of the traditional parties in, in the U.S., and has worked, as we've seen with the, the recent uh, confirmation of Kavanaugh, uh, has worked with them. Uh, Bolsonaro owes nothing to the traditional parties in Brazil, so it's much more of a wild card, um, even more of a wild card, I think, than, than Donald Trump. And in spite of that track record, Tom, that roll of dishonor, you might call it, um, almost 50 million people voted for Bolsonaro in the first round. So what does that say about the level of disillusionment in Brazil with the political establishment? It, is, it really does show up just um, how disillusioned voters are in Brazil. And talking to them throughout the campaign and even out talking with people this morning, um, you know, when you meet people who say that they voted for Bolsonaro and I say, well, what about his, the fact he's a racist, he's a misogynist, he's this and that and the other. And they all go... Yeah, you know, he is, but um, something has to change here and he's the guy to do it. Um, and I think there are two things that have intersected in Brazil uh, to the to the detriment of the traditional political class. One is a brutal recession which started in 2014 and which, um, while it has ended, the economy is limped out of it. There are still around 14 million people unemployed in Brazil and that has caused a lot of social devastation and that has been blamed um, principally on uh, the Workers' Party of Fernando Haddad and uh, former president, Presidents Lula and Dilma. But also there's uh, the corruption scandals, which at the same time as the recession took hold, exploded uh, a multiple um, kind of universe of corruption scandals, which implicated pretty much the whole political class, left, right, centre, in power, out of power, uh, implicated a lot of them. And I think that has um, disgusted a lot of Brazilians. The the amount of money that was involved, the the schemes that were involved, have led to a very very deep anti-incumbency mood. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of observers, and I would include myself in this, underestimated um, the the depth of that anger and how the anger at those things would allow a lot of people to overcome the fact. Um, that Bolsonaro is as controversial as he is and vote for him anyway. And um, I think, you know, that is a, a crucial factor in his 
in his rise is that he was always a fringe figure. This is someone who has never achieved anything in 28 years in the Congress. But for many voters, that means he's not responsible for anything either. And that's been a huge benefit for him. Now, now his opponent in the in the runoff, because as you mentioned earlier, he, he hasn't won the election yet. Um, Fernando Haddad, we've mentioned him there a couple of times. He wouldn't be in the field were it not for the fact that the Workers' Party's preferred candidate, the former president, Lula, is, is in jail. Um, having been convicted of corruption and barred from running. So tell us something about Haddad. Well, Haddad, the former mayor of Sao Paulo, he was a minister for Lula. Um, I, you know, have interviewed him. He's, a, as I recall, a very uh, moderate um, Workers' Party leader compared to, to some of the others. Um, but, you know, I think one of the big problems that Haddad faces is that for a lot of Brazilians, even those who, who might be well disposed towards him, there's the idea that Hadaji is just a front for Lula. Um, and if Hadaji wins, this is something else that you constantly hear, if Hadaji wins, it'll mean that Lula will get out of prison. And Hadaji last night was talking about trying to uh, build a democratic alliance um, to halt the rise of the far right in Bolsonaro in the second round. Um, and yet this morning, there's been an awful lot of comment, a lot of it negative, that one of his first commitments uh, heading into the second round was to fly down to the city where Lula is prisoner to discuss strategy um, with, um, with Lula about how to, how to tackle the second round. So I think while many people might be well disposed towards Hadaji, the problem is, is that his party is for, I think, a majority of Brazilians uh, discredited because of its involvement in the corruption scandals. We, we saw uh, a hint of that um, in the Senate race in Minas Gerais, where uh, impeached President Dilma Rousseff, she was running for uh, one of the two Senate seats there. All through the campaign, every opinion poll showed her leading that race. She came in fourth. The PT uh, was in down ticket races, was hammered as well last night. So Hadaji's problem is to try and break out of the minority left wing base in Brazil that believes that Lula is a political prisoner, uh, that doesn't accept any responsibility for the for the recession and try and dialogue with other groups that have been washed away by Bolsonaro and somehow stitched together an alliance. But a lot of people are wondering if that's going to be possible, if the, uh, the Workers' Party continues with um, this sort of uh, narrative up there is that Lula is a political prisoner, that they've done nothing wrong, that they're not responsible for anything. And uh, it's difficult to see how Hadaji can make up 18 million votes on Bolsonaro in the second round if, if they do not change that narrative. OK, Tom, but well, the runoff is on October 28th, so we'll see if Haddad can make up that gap. Um, if Bolsonaro does win, I mean, we started the podcast today with a discussion on the latest uh, UN, um, the IPCC report, on, on climate change, very severe warnings about actions that need to be taken urgently um, in, the, in the very immediate future. Uh, Bolsonaro, of course, is another climate change sceptic, isn't he, in the mould of Trump? Yeah, um, if Bolsonaro wins, uh, I think the, the planet cannot be expecting too much uh, support in combating climate change from a, a Bolsonaro administration. Um, this is someone who thinks that, uh, you know, environmental organizations are really fronts for foreign powers trying to restrain uh, Brazilian growth. And uh, one of his key key constituencies is the uh, agribusiness sector, um, big farmers. 
and they're chomping at the bit to try and, and peel back some of the restrictions imposed on the expansion of Brazil's agricultural frontier into um, rainforest areas. And I think a Bolsonaro president would be a major, major risk to the Amazon and the planet. Okay, Tom. Well, we'll see what unfolds over the next couple of weeks. Thanks a lot for that today. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.